2: Welcome back to the New Books and in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Keith Krueger, and today we're very fortunate to be joined by Alexander Zegche, an American freelance journalist in the spirit of the original patent medicine muckrakers, such as Harvard-trained journalist and legal scholar Mark Sullivan and Samuel Hopkins Adams, whose influential series on patent medicine, The Great American Fraud, ended its run in Collier's February 1906, the same month that Upton Sinclair's The Jungle was published. Like Adams, Zaytchik's preferred investigative reporting appears in both periodicals and books. He's written for publications such as The Nation, The New Republic, Rolling Stone, The Guardian, and Foreign Policy, just to name a few. He's a staff writer and editor at the New York Press, or was, um, The Exile in Moscow, and the founding editor at the Prague Pill an alternative newspaper in the Czech Republic. His first book, Common Nonsense, Glenn Beck and the Triumph of Ignorance, was published in 2010, and he's written three since, including his latest, Owning the Sun, a People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19, published this month by Counterpoint Press. Alexander Zajic, Alex, thank you for taking the time to talk with us about your writing and research. Oh, it's great to be here, Keith. It's an honor. Nice to finally talk to you, Alex. Uh, no doubt you're staying busy with book promotion. Here we are. Uh, does this does this mean you can take a break from new projects, or uh, is the investigative writing process ongoing? What's what's the sales phrase? Always selling, or, or in your or in your case, always muckraking?
3: Yeah, I mean, well, it's sort of a transition um, moment. I am doing a lot of um, interviews about pharma, uh, but I'm in the process of moving and pivoting to the next, uh, phase of, of, um, you could be seen as an extension of this project. Really. It's, it's a look at, invi- uh, intellectual property in the areas of green tech and agriculture, um, two areas in which a lot of the same issues are at play where you have, um, very socially vital, um, research being conducted with, uh, private actors seeking to, uh, control that, research and the resulting inventions for their own benefit when the planet really needs to scale the stuff up very quickly and make it as accessible as possible to um, the rest of the world in particular developing countries. So some of the same pharma um, IP issues are now at play in, um, uh, in the environmental realm. So that's sort of my next project, which I'm starting to, to work on. But yeah, a lot of interviews um, this week and last over the, the news cycle, as you can imagine, was not kind for a, uh, a book about anything besides uh, war
2: but you do seem to like that interplay with the uh, that tension between the private and the public that kind of twilight zone there
3: yeah i mean it's it's a fascinating tension that doesn't get enough you know care and and focus i think because it is so fundamental and it sort of in a way the core of it stretches back you know to the ancient World, like what is knowledge and and uh, where does it come from, and and is it something that should belong to us all, or is it something that, as you know, in more recent times, we've decided can be parceled up and controlled and uh, made, uh, you know, and, and restricted. Um, sure. And so it's a battle between like a very like deep, long-standing view of of knowledge and science and a much more recent one that goes to the heart of what kind of global economy and society that we've built and, and um, established for ourselves that has enclosed everything. I mean, enclosure used to be uh, something that we talked about in terms of land and, and forests, but increasingly it, it, it um, encompasses everything down to the human genome.
2: Hey, before we uh, jump into all that, this is your your fourth book. Do you have time to give us a a short synopsis of the first three, and and what set you on a course to to write your latest about monopoly medicine? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do a quick rundown. The uh, the Glenn Beck book was could not be farther um
3: in terms farther away in terms of subject matter. That was actually just uh, started out as a quickie. I was having lunch with a, a publisher, um, you know, in two thousand nine, right at the beginning of the Tea Party stuff, the 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 conservative AstroTurf reaction to the Obama presidency and the chance of a uh, uh, public health care. And he said, "Do you want to write a book about this guy Glenn, Glenn Beck?" And I, I honestly barely knew who he was, and I just kind of faked it and went home and started researching Glenn Beck. And uh, as I started working on this book, which was meant to be a very quick project, Beck became one of the biggest stories in the country. He was a media sensation. The next thing I know, he was on—you know—he um, had moved from CNN Headline News to Fox, and I suddenly I had this tiger by the tail. He was being—you know imitated on saturday night live and the daily show and uh so i ended up spending like a year on that and moved out to tampa and sort of followed him his career around the country and interviewed people that knew him coming up and uh so that that was that that was very much a tea party moment project um and then in 2015-16 i started following the trump campaign around um and interviewing people on uh, the primary trail and that developed into partly because of the time crunch but also just because i thought it was a fascinating approach into a sort of Studs Terkel style oral history where I just said you know what the media is trying to explain the quote-unquote Trump voter the Trump phenomenon from you know 2,000 miles away I'm just gonna let the Trump voter explain himself and I think that would be a little more interesting and I think it turned out to be pretty interesting nice. I mean, um, in six different primary states I basically just conducted long-form um, interviews about people's lives and we, sometimes we didn't get the politics until the very end and, and people just talked about their experience as an American since, you know, the 1960s, which explained a lot about the Trump law. So that was that that project that came out into a much better news cycle. It actually released the week he was coronated in Cleveland in the RNC. Um, Couldn't have gotten any luckier luckier there. So I guess I was due for a a Ukraine-Russia war uh, when this book came out. Um, But the one in between the two was just a small very short book about uh, Tom Price the former health and Human services director under uh, Trump Who was uh, ignominiously? uh, Forced to resign after he was uh, revealed to be taking um, private government planes on personal trips
2: Let's start with the title uh, of your latest book and its metaphor about the ownership of the Sun I I like that Uh, you note in the introduction that most people have heard of Jonas Salk and his uh, polio vaccine success which made news at the at the time Uh, when the U.S. was in a post-war debate centered on drug patenting in the 1950s. This bit of history is linked to the concept of monopoly, uh, not uh, because one existed on on the vaccine, uh, the polio vaccine, but rather the significance of the implication of of Salk's rhetorical question, which he uh, uttered on national television uh, when he said, uh, could you patent this on? And uh, you point that out in your introduction. Hey, can you share the details surrounding this uh, famous quote, uh, which illustrates the really the, the value-laden contrast uh, between this particular Eisenhower era vaccine development and the, as you put it, corporate vaccine nationalism of our more uh, recent 2020 federal program, Operation Warp Speed, for accelerating pandemic-related research. Mm -hmm. Sure, before getting to the SOP quote though, I think it's important to note that
3: the the line was not as original as uh, many people believe, including myself, before I researched this book. It's a very famous quip, famous one-liner, maybe the most famous one-liner delivered (laughs) in the first couple of decades of television. But he basically stole the line, and it's one that had been nice. recurring throughout the history of debate over the privatization of knowledge or, or the attempt to restrict um, the diffusion of knowledge. So the first time you encounter the line or one like it is among the agents who were constantly describing knowledge as as fundamental as a natural element – such as the air Lewis Hyde has a great book on this history called common as air. I think, uh, I should know this. I think he's quoting Heraclitus in any event, the ancients were were constantly comparing the idea of, um, that knowledge was coming from, from nature. It was, it was all around us and and no one man could control it any more than they could control the sun. So you see it again in the early uh, American Republic where, um, guys like Owen Biddle, the early sort of, um, you know, research class that was sort of you know for whom ben franklin was the hero and franklin very much adhered to this ancient slash by then enlightenment conception of knowledge as um, The sort of gift of the universe and if you were very religious a gift from the mind of god those two traditions were um, Very complementary and dovetailed with each other in the early american republic (laughs) So you heard it there too comparisons between knowledge and and the sun itself and The first time I saw it in the form of a quip Came in the 1840s when a Boston dentist invented ether, or basically realized you could eliminate consciousness during surgery with ether. And he tried to patent it because he was a dentist, not a doctor, and he was outside of what was then a very strict ethical norm that you did not attempt to monopolize medical breakthroughs; that it was should be available to all of humanity on equal terms. And he said to a, uh, a medical journal at the time, a doctor who was criticizing um, Morton said this is ridiculous. Should I also have to patent sunlight? Like it was so absurd to him. And that was the example he used, which was the exact, basically the line that Salk would adopt. And then again, in the 1920s, when Harry Steenbach of the University of Wisconsin patented a method for generating vitamin D through the use of ultraviolet lights, which was a major, major breakthrough at the time because of the problem of rickets, especially in Northern Europe, which is a vitamin D deficiency disease, the medical community, the transatlantic medical community responded like, the Americans are trying to patent sunlight itself, the sun itself. This right. is just outrageous. The, the American Medical Association issued, um, you know, editorials and denunciations that basically made the same comparison that Salk would make thirty years later on television when Ed Murrow. To get to the, the original question, the context was the field trial for Salk's dead virus polio vaccine had just been declared a success that morning, uh, in 1955, I believe it was in April, and he was the center of a very elaborate. Unveiling ceremony of the results. It, you know, it was a big deal. The the country had been living in terror of polio for so long. The idea that it was finally at an end it was it was a major television event. And that night, Edward Murrow on his you know, number one program, news program, at CBS, uh, said, "Who wants a patent?" And that is when Salk reached back through this incredibly long tradition, going back thousands of years, and said, "Nobody could you patent the sun?" And hmm. it struck a chord with a public who was just beginning to come to grips with the rise of what was, in essence a post-ethical pharmaceutical industry. Before World War II, it was self-consciously ethical, and it was connected to these older traditions. But by the 1950s, you had what we know today, the sort of very profit-minded monopoly obsessed, you know, for lack of a better word, villainous industry in the public mind. You had the first government investigation starting to take place. The FTC was investigating um, cartelization in the antibiotics industry uh, as early as 1955, around the same time. And you also had some safety scandals around the polio vaccine itself, the famous cutter incident in which one of the companies contracted to produce the polio vaccine was cutting corners to save money. And Salk had a feeling this might happen. And he was pleading with the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis to require the government to screen all batches before they went out um, during the field trial. And uh, the cutter incident validated those concerns. Unfortunately, some people died, some kids were um,
2: uh, paralyzed in the process. So you use that term corporate vaccine nationalism, and then you contrast that with uh, the 2020 program that Operation Warp Speed Mm-hmm. I mean, Operation Warp Speed is in many ways the consummation of everything
3: that's discussed in the book. The entire history of um, the rise of the pharmaceutical industry, based on public subsidies, is perfectly encapsulated in Operation Warp Speed, which was basically corporate, <laughs> uh, nationalistic progress project in which the United States government provided billions of dollars um, to the private sector, um, and the, there was a you know a sense that the. Go- the government and the companies were one and, you know, the, our drug champions are somehow an expression of the United States and should be protected. Their IP should be protected, uh, even though that IP is very much a, a private you know, possession. And that tension between you know, public and private is sort of swept under the surface uh, for most people. But really, that's that's the heart of um, the absurdity is, you know, if we're giving billions of dollars to Moderna and. They refuse to allow even the most moderate um, social obligations to those uh, subsidies uh, and contracts, then, you know, who's really being benefited here? Who's in the driver's seat? Like, when did the United States government become a junior partner to... (laughs) in industry that it is funding to the tune of, you know, almost $50 billion a year. So all of that comes to a head during um, the pandemic with with Warp Speed and not just in the U.S., but other countries, too. You had drug champions being treated as if they were extensions of the government. But the government is supposed to be uh, advancing broad social interests, not narrow private ones. And uh, that's essentially what they end up doing when they transfer total control of IP to these companies.
2: Well, as you say, in in the context of the uh... Uh, the current pandemic and it, it doesn't seem like it's abating. <clears throat> it just morphing into or evolving into something else, uh, or these variations on, on, on the virus. But w- when confronted, or when uh, when people read your book's analysis, uh, at least uh, I found it's it's hard not to ask, you know, what's wrong with this picture? And as as you point out, h- how can an industry group uh, threaten the government after it funds its work? And as you say protects its business model in the private sector. If a company funds the research and the overhead, it, it is customary for the titles on the inventions to, to go to them. But somehow the federal government seems no longer able to, um, to bring itself to enforce a similar arrangement, as you point out, for research funded by the National Institutes for Health. And I, I like your term for this. Uh, you, you call this a hydra-headed betrayal. Uh, which is a, a disconcerting image. Can and you've kind of unpacked a bit of this already, but um, uh, this in, the industry's disingenuous rhetoric here uh, with regard to monopoly and and the and, and how they use this. It's an incentive for innovation and progress. Can you talk a little bit about that and and how it connects to monopoly power?
3: Sure. I mean that's been the industry argument from the beginning, from the rise of this post-ethical industry that embraced monopoly after a long time of, of rejecting monopolies on scientific, um, avarice at odds with the, uh, the scientific and especially the medical um, profession. But the new argument to justify their embrace of monopoly was the profits that these monopolies generate, which are outsized profits, because elsewhere in the economy, there's a ban on monopolies, right? I mean, the patent, the invention mm-hmm. patent is an exception to a general ban on monopoly. That's where it comes from. Like in 1624, the crown conceded to parliament We will no longer bestow monopolies and and abuse uh, the general population with with these sweetheart deals to our, you know, favored courtiers. But we will continue to give brief monopolies to inventors in the interest of spurring uh, innovation and drawing inventors to England and um, help, you know, uh, advance the economy and, and generate new traits. So that exception to the general ban monopoly was justified within medicine as spurring on similar grounds as spurring the needed advances to make life more healthy and long. However, what we've seen is, and this is very heavily documented now, more so by the day, there's an enormous amount of literature bearing this out, is the companies have turned their back on the kind of research that leads to generally valuable and breakthrough research. It's very expensive, it's very risky, and they have been content to let that research happen uh, on the public dime. In academic labs and basically what they've done is they have focused on purchasing those uh, inventions and the research on the cusp of those inventions on what is essentially a secondary market <laughs> and then they claim them as their own and they price them as high as the market will bear which is quite high Um, This is an inelastic market. They can get whatever the hell they want. And then the profits from these monopolies are not going back into R&D, because, again, mostly that's happening in the public sector. Where are these profits going? They're going to inflate share prices with stock buybacks. They're going to executive bonuses. They're going to enormous lobbying and marketing outlays. They're going to hiring the best patent lawyers the money can buy so they can game the patent system and extend monopolies on drugs that are not innovative in any way, but are, you know, classic me too drugs or slightly tweaked molecules. Um, so the innovation argument has completely collapsed, but the power of it is such that it continues to haunt the public imagination and the political imagination, because what they've done is increasingly as the innovation argument has worn thin, they've begun leaning on patient groups, patient advocacy groups, where they have sick people speak for them. And it's much harder to, uh, you know, call bullshit on someone who's dying mm-hmm. than it is on the uh, pharmaceutical CEO. So if you are in Congress, and you are arguing for patent reform, uh, you're going to be hit with ads from patient groups saying if this person is allowed to touch the pharmaceutical industry, my child will die. And these people are being wheeled into your office in the Capitol, and it's very effective. And there are signs that the the effectiveness of this strategy may be beginning to weaken. But Generally speaking, that's how they've shored up the innovation argument, even though it's easily and increasingly easily uh, disproven by looking at the record and the internal documents of what these companies are doing with their money and what the business model is, which is pretty much the business model of a hedge fund.
2: Mm, which is uh, you had written that article a few years ago uh, in the New Republic about big pharma. And uh, you, you basically, I think, um, was it how big pharma ha- was captured by the one percent? Uh, the, the subtitle, I suppose, says it all. The industry's price gouging economic model uh, was engineered by Wall Street and its uh, political enablers and only Washington can fix it. But you also uh, went on, though, to kind of c- conclude that article by saying look hey we need to reject or rethink a couple of myths that we um that we've kind of consumed or that we live by can you talk a little bit about those myths and how it leads to finance being the problem finance piece of it is
3: related to a change in law on the one hand and the economy on the other And they both sort of happened around the same time which generally speaking, was say the mid-late 1970s, you had the increasing financialization of the economy on the one hand. Mm, you had um, the rise of a biotech industry that was acting as a sort of middleman between the university research culture and the pharmas. And you had laws that enabled these companies to basically just snatch up the IP as a default um, system, whereas before Dole in 1980, the government had default possession of inventions in IP resulting from publicly funded work. So right around the time you have the rise of this very wealthy new sector of the economy, new formations of capital, very eager to benefit from these new laws. So that's where you really start to see the financialization of the pharmaceutical industry. Not to say there wasn't greed before 1980 in the pharmaceutical industry. Big Pharma had been around for decades by that point, but they were not owned by literal hedge funds. You know, They were not taking directions from Wall Street to the extent that you see now. And that was a big change. That was a cultural change, and also it was a cultural change among the university research centers, which now were increasingly involved in just straight up investor class. Whereas before yeah. they were, you know, doing business with drug companies, but it wasn't quite uh, as lucrative. It wasn't quite as dirty. You know, that basically a, a very sophisticated um, assembly line had been constructed in the 1980s that just made it, you know, <laughs> how to put this. Um, I mean. In the 1980s, they it was mandated that there were actually you know luxury class equivalent waiting rooms for industry to hang out in these um, publicly funded research settings to facilitate the handover of um, the the research results. I mean, it was just institutionalized in a way uh, very very fast and and very. Um, very strikingly in terms of what used to be the values of the university and and the pharmaceutical industry that was now just leeching all of, all of the research out of that, um, that world.
2: Yeah. Well, and you, you go on to, Talk in your book about this sense of entitlement and, and we can try to try to get to that by looking at some of the chapters. I like the way that uh, uh, you set things up and and some really nice dovetailing between the chapters and the overlays and, and your transitions are all are spot on. and And it's it's nice. Some of your descriptions, I mean, like. Like I, like I shared about the uh, the Hydra-headed betrayal, you've got some good lines in, in in the book. As far as those those myths, though, in in that uh, New Republic article, you, one of those uh, myths was about uh, controlling prices and how it stymies innovation. Uh, you've talked about that, but the other one was kind of the one I wanted to get to, and that was this larger myth uh, that still uh, persists. And 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 I think it as you've kind of alluded to. Uh, with with the finance problem uh, the myth is that hey we've got a free market ideology in our political system and, and we can't seem to either let it go or at least put it on a leash of some sort and it seems tied to your point going back to uh, this idea that the federal government is um, in a inferior position relative to uh, the industry yeah I mean the idea
3: that this is some sort of free market system that can- can't be tinkered with is just, you know, you you have to laugh when they say this and they've been saying it for a long time. I mean, if you, if you, if we're going to crunch this down to a bumper sticker, it would literally be (laughs) the words, there is no free market in pharmaceuticals. It is the most protected racket in the economy. And that's why they have the biggest margins in the economy. There's nothing natural or free market about pharma and drugs. It is a creation of government issued patent monopolies that are protected in US courts in particular uh, the federal appeals court in dc which handles patent cases and it is also a creature of extended patents which is a more recent phenomenon and you have the globalization of patents which was very much a state department project in the 1980s in, in conjunction with industry so yeah there is nothing free market about the industry or the patents it relies on which is why classical economists, the the people who theorized capitalism in the first place, John Locke, Adam Smith, they were heavily skeptical of the patent exceptions to the ban on monopolies. They thought it was distorting. They thought it was, um, you know, the state interfering in the economy, and they doubted the innovation argument from the beginning. And then the neoclassical guys, von Mises, um, Hayek, the, the sort of forerunners of what we know as neoliberalism, also rejected patents and monopolies as an expression of state power that distorted information flow in the economy. So it wasn't really until the post-war decades in the U.S. where corporate America funded a rewiring and a rewriting of classical theory to accommodate monopolies and drug monopolies above all, because the pharmaceutical industry funded this intellectual project at the University of Chicago very explicitly and very early on. It's worth noting. They were one of the first funders of what became known as the law and economics movement. You know, they had to shoehorn Monopoly into this new version of classical free market, quote unquote, economics that Milton Friedman came to um, exemplify. But it was a very violent shoehorning. There was nothing natural about it. And the early forerunners of that movement, the guys who were actually around Hayek himself, were all extremely opposed to Pence. In patent monopolies. And they were very much in line with the New Deal expression of reforming those things. And they supported Roosevelt's Justice Department, Thurman Arnold's attempts to rein in patents and patent monopolies and um, patent arrangements between uh, U.S. and foreign companies. They were on the same page because it fit in with an actually consistent, coherent vision for what free market economics, a competition based economy was. And there was no room for patents. So that's an artificial creation. And the fact that the the industry gets away with saying it so often is is maddening.
2: It is an amazing rundown. And I think one of the things that people will find interesting about your book in terms of how you bring these things to light. This goes back to the founding, right? I mean, you talk about the Federalist Papers and uh, the Progress Clause, Uh, in the new constitution of the country that, or that we know now as intellectual property. But do you want to unpack a little bit about that? I think that's your chapter one, which is uh, uh, origins, the rise of the great American patent. And you started out with Italy's late Renaissance uh, era princes, and and you talk about the triangular social contract that develops in England. And and also uh, some of the interesting things you're talking about are, are the patent police, and some people will be familiar with these kind of things make their way to the new world and America's founding leaders um, uh, and, and our new constitution. So you, you also lay out, uh, I think, compelling framing questions that center on the ownership of knowledge, practices and markets that, as you've already kind of alluded to, really remain unresolved to this day. But that, that's kind of a it's a nice uh, opening chapter to uh, get to the genesis of, of the great American patent.
3: Right. Well, there's a lot there. Uh, I guess I would start by just saying the colonies inherited the English common law system, which was formalized in the 1624 statute of monopolies, which I mentioned, which basically banned royal power, uh, royal monopoly power, um, with the exception of inventions. And there was a deeper skepticism of monopoly in the colonies, perhaps even than in, in England, because monopolies were still used there as weapons of political control. And there was a very visceral hatred of anything that hinted of unnatural uh, crown power. And monopolies were closely associated with that, you know, control over industries like tea, (laughs) stamps. I mean, you go down the list um, were things that touched on this hatred. And at the Constitutional Convention, Madison was the strongest voice. Madison and Pinckney from South Carolina were the two strongest voices in favor of adopting a patent system at all along the lines of the, the British system. And... As you mentioned, Franklin uh, had no use for patents. Thomas Jefferson had no use for patents. He was also profoundly skeptical of the idea of intellectual property, um, the idea that ideas should be knowledge should be treated as as if they were physical things. Nobody at the convention was really excited about this except Pinckney and Madison. They got in one line, which is Article One, Section Eight, which was known as the Progress Clause, which said the government can issue brief monopolies in the interest of uh, advocating quote uh, progress in the useful arts that is what the pen system was built upon that short clause within a matter of four decades transformed into a very different thing the social contract that you mentioned which goes all the way back to renaissance italy and and, and through uh the, the english experience was basically like look we'll make this exception to monopoly in exchange for subjecting all issuing of patents to a standard of improving the economy for everybody and diffusing knowledge widely once the term runs out Everyone will have access to this knowledge, and it will be uh, of use and benefit to the realm. Now, when Jackson comes to power and his allies, they basically undermine this longstanding understanding of the social contract of patents by saying, no, it's just a simple property right. If a company wants to buy a patent and just sit on it, they want to bury it, they can do that. They don't have to – they have no obligation to diffuse the knowledge or make it productive or introduce new products and trades. They can just use it as um, – a blocking uh, strategy. And this is where we start to see patent hoarding, patent thickets, patent trolls, patent abuse, they basically um, orchestrated a legal shift that undermined that social contract. And that social contract is still being debated today, because people don't want to let go of it. Because if you let go of the social dimension of a patent, then it just becomes a very low hanging fruit for the largest and most unscrupulous corporate actors to block progress, not promote it. And if you're just blocking progress and allowing the biggest companies to get bigger and abuse the public, then what's the point of this whole system? Especially when in the case of pharmaceuticals, they're doing this with enormous amounts of public money. It's just it becomes especially grotesque. It's not just some steel company who takes some in-house research and, you know, buries it so no other competitors can get it. This is these are companies taking tens of billion dollars of taxpayer money and then restricting knowledge and raising the prices on drugs that could be helping Americans live better lives. So of all the industries where this expresses itself, it's the most grotesque in medicine.
2: Hey, so you go on, though, uh, and there's there's a few more things. There's there's many more things to, to to try to get at here. And one of the things in, in your next chapter you uh, that you title Ethical Medicine in the Republic of Science, uh, you've moved on and um, you've introduced the early uh, American Medical Association and some players in your story, like Francis Stewart and this concept of ethical drug patenting. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Francis Stewart was a
3: doctor and researcher who came up with a pretty important treatment for what was called wasting disease and he caused quite a stir when he signed a basically what amounted to a um, advisory role with Park Davis one of the larger ethical uh, pharmaceutical firms out of Detroit and at the time this just wasn't done um, researchers were not supposed to be involved in the business of medicine, they were supposed to do research, and drug uh, companies were supposed to sell their products on a non-monopoly basis in a very staid, responsible manner. There were no trademarks back then. There were no brand names. There was just a company selling medicines by their scientific names. It was a completely different world. And what Stewart did, together with George Davis, the CEO of, of Park Davis, was begin to advance an argument for a closer collaboration between the worlds of research and um, the manufacturers of medicines. At the same time, they began to formulate something known as ethical patenting, which basically breached the patent taboo by saying, look, we can maintain our values, our ideals, and serve them with a version of monopoly control. And they basically said it would do two things. One, we could block unscrupulous actors from gaining control of medical products because we're ethical. We can be Um, You know, we're responsible, you don't have to worry about us restricting the knowledge uh, necessarily and blocking licensing that would increase the availability of medicines. Two, the profits from this would help fund research and development, the argument we're still hearing today. And back then it was more true because you had, this was the rise of scientific medicine. Back then there were breakthroughs happening and you needed labs of size the of size that you didn't need previous to the 1880s and 1890s. So there, there was receptivity to these arguments, but they were still extremely controversial. And for the most part, they were shouted down from the major conferences, from the you know the board meetings of the major journals. The ethical gatekeepers did not like this conversation, but they started it. And once they started it, cracks began to spread. And you had increasing crossover between industry and medicine and research. Those three worlds began to overlap more than they had. At the same time, you had the arrival of German chemical pharmaceutical firms into the U.S. market, which had and they brought with them some breakthroughs based on um, coal tar and dyes, such as, you know, it's a long list, but they started to patent them. And the ones that drew the most ire were phenacetin and aspirin very important drugs. Germans basically said, look, if your courts are going to allow it, if your patent system allows us to, to patent this stuff, then we're going to do it because they couldn't get away with it in Europe. They, they were all rejected out of hand. But by then, the Jacksonian sort of turn uh, had encompassed the medical taboo and the Germans took advantage of it, even though the U.S. companies were still self-consciously ethical and they were not following quite yet in the German German footsteps. But those two events sort of happened around the same time the the Park Davis cracks and the arrival of the Germans and that sets the stage for the dissolution of the patent taboo in the first decades of the 20th century
2: and and you mentioned uh, you go into this whole thing about and I I believe it's in that chapter uh, about the black market smuggling of aspirin and where that all led so that that's some interesting uh, background for readers You move on uh, from there. Once the taboo's over or been bypassed, your, your next chapter is entitled Death of the Taboo, Sunshine in a Bottle. Can you talk a little bit about you've mentioned Steenbach at uh, University of Wisconsin, but how does the University of Wisconsin's Alumni Research Foundation uh, Worf, And as you talked a little bit about vitamin D and the editor of the Journal of American uh, Medical Association that Morris Fishbein, Mm. uh, he writes an essay about the insulin monopoly. How, How does that all fit into your chapter title there? Right. Okay. So the Steenbach story is really
3: an interesting one. And basically, Harry Steenbach was a researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which was the research conducted there on the scientific side was mostly oriented towards the local industry, and the dominant one was dairy. So the dairy industry was funding lab that Steenbach was working in as a young PhD and he also grew up on a dairy farm he was very you know he associated with the industry as his own and uh, it employed him so he was loyal he was very loyal and when he stumbled on a way to create vitamin D his first thought was how do I keep this invention from falling into the hands of the margarine industry which was an upstart industry challenging dairy at the time but the problem was from their point of view was they could not match the nutritional value of real butter however if they could infuse their product with vitamin D they would cut into dairy's dominance and from the point of view of you know a coal town in northern England this was a good thing because people couldn't afford maybe real dairy products but if they could buy the cheaper versions that also had vitamin D there might be less rickets so you have a classic case of ethical duty according to the old ethical model and basically market interests in direct conflict in this tiny lab in the middle of Wisconsin In the early 1920s what does harry steenbach do he goes to the administration at the university of wisconsin and he says we cannot let this invention fall into the hands of the margarine industry but at the same time i can't control a monopoly on this because i will be just destroyed by my peers i will it's 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 unethical the university will be you know we'll ruin our name and what are we going to do they come up with a way to they think split the difference where they basically create an outside organization called the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation to manage the vitamin D process patent on behalf of the, of the university. And this created plausible deniability, and Steenbach never actually saw the profits himself. The university technically didn't see the, process, uh, the profits or control the patent. What they did was the wharf invested all of the licensing money that, you know, they licensed it broadly, but not to margin but on principle, the world was outraged at this. So the wharf reinvested that money into the stock market during the war roaring twenties and gave it back to the university, which reinvested in research. So it, this was like the university version of ethical patenting. And it's the birth of ethical patenting in the university. And that model would spread. And then you have universities patenting, which was unheard of until then, because it went against every value associated, not just with medicine and in science but the university as well so it was an even deeper taboo within university research culture and that started over this farm boy's desire to protect his his home state industry
2: yeah it no it's an interesting story and the way you uh, put that together with the implications as you say in that lab in wisconsin and this idea that it comes down to uh Uh, Butter versus margarine is interesting in itself. Morris Fishbein, though, is part of the uh, story here. He's the editor of the AMA's journal. He fits in a little bit later.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
3: Yeah, he was a very powerful voice for the ethical paradigm in its twilight. And he had to sort of negotiate these arguments within the pages of the journal, which is you know, the, the most influential medical journal in the United States and in one of them in the world. And he was was the sort of arbiter of, of this intense fight, which intensified during the, the depression where researchers were saying, look, whatever we can do to make some money. What's what's wrong with that? Like, <laughs> you know, these old these old rules should not apply anymore because they don't make sense. And uh, then you had the old guard saying, once we start to make excuses and exceptions, we're going to become the post ethical industry that, in fact, it became within 20 years. So the critics and the doubters of so, quote unquote ethical patenting proved correct. But Fischbein was the editorialist who had to sort of oversee this debate and judge the um, first attempts to uh, justify ethical patenting. And he was judicious, but he was also mostly critical and he knew exactly what it spelled for medicine. And uh, and he said as much in in a number of editorials that uh, I quote a couple of them in in the book.
2: Yeah, no, it's interesting. From there, I think you end that chapter by referencing his title uh, because you make a point about the title of an article or an essay that he writes and he actually uses the word monopoly calls it the insulin monopoly um you move on from there to your next chapter which and you've mentioned uh thurman arnold but uh the title of that ch- uh, the chapter uh, that he is um front and center is thurman's army full title is the new deal against monopoly and here's where we see Some of the um, some of the New Deal forces and you you open that chapter, though, uh, with the untimely stroke of President Wilson, whose administration had just established an antitrust division within the Justice Department, followed by, as you put it, uh, the looming billion dollar question, which was who would have access to the cornucopia of patentable products created in federally funded laboratories come peacetime? And you also talk about, I think interestingly, FDR's tin ear, uh, so to speak, for the deep hatred that industry leaders had for him. Can can you share some of your positioning of the key players in the narrative at this point? And and thinking here uh, about Supreme Court Justice uh, Louis Brandeis and and of course the chapter namesake, uh, Thurman Arnold, because he had a few books and had a connection to uh, that legal movement, uh, legal realism.
3: Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's a lot there. I'll try to touch on all of it. The place to start is the 1930s, where, where the New Deal really comes into its own FDR's second term. The New Dealers were skeptical of uh, concentrations of power once it pivoted um, in the second uh, administration. And that skepticism and hostility was, was entwined with the patent issue because a lot of the worst actors in the U.S. economy and FDR's biggest enemies, who some of whom helped oversee the, the failed Wall Street push written about by Smedley Butler, Those same companies had strategic patent arrangements with Nazi industry. They were basically treasonous. Mm. And they were allowed to control all of this knowledge that now was vital to a looming war effort, because it was clear that the war clouds were gathering, And companies like Alcoa, you know, all the way down the line, this much smaller firms were able to choke off production and slow down manufacture of all kinds of products in all kinds of ways because of these patents that they were squatting on these patent tickets that they had constructed to to impede competition and also enable cartelization with Nazi fascist industry so the new dealer saw all that in the 1930s and came into the war determined to one break up those concentrations of power and take the uh, intellectual property and diffuse it as The Constitution said the patent system should be doing anyway. Um, And to do that, they needed to supercharge the antitrust office, which, as you mentioned, was set up by by Wilson, uh, which had been kind of backwater until um, FDR's second term. And man, uh, that he hired to run the antitrust division in, uh, in the DOJ the best known of them anyway was thurman arnold who was a yale law professor uh and the sort of face of a movement known as legal realism which basically said look let's deal with the economy as it is let's not have what he called the folklore of capitalism get in the way of being honest about what this country has become you know we can talk about backwoods tinkerers and the the, the plucky american inventor and therefore the patent system is is sacred but that's not what what it is. This is the age of the corporate research center. This is the age of Alcoa working with the Nazis. Like That's what the U.S. American patent has become. So we need to act accordingly. And he began going after the patent power of U.S. industry quite effectively. Um, and this carried over into the post-war period where you had the new dealers trying to build a post-war system that was restrictive in terms of private patent power. And you had the corporations trying to Maintain and expand their patent power, and that kind of defined the next 30 years of political contest over the shape of U.S. science policy and medical research in particular. <laughs> so that's kind of my sketch of that period, although that's that leaves a, a lot out. Uh, but Thurman Arm, amazing guy, amazing guy, brilliant scholar, brilliant media operator. He was a force, and he was never, unfortunately, you know, there wasn't another like him uh, when he left to become a federal court justice.
2: Interestingly, I think after this chapter, you open the next chapter with uh, John Wesley Powell's geological and mapping expedition down the Colorado River. Uh, the title of uh, the chapter is Homesteading the Endless Frontier, Patents, Penicillin and Superpower uh, Science. You, you had me with Powell in the expedition for sure, uh, but explain to listeners how this fits into your argument because this is another engaging chapter that connects the dots by introducing some pivotal players like uh, Harvey Kilgore, Vannevar Bush, and as you describe it, uh, the patent divide. Can you share a bit of your narrative there, and including, if you, if you can, uh, Bush's paper, uh, Science, The Endless Frontier? So Powell may seem uh, an unintuitive character to
3: introduce in this chapter, but I think he's important because he, well ahead of his time— saw the way that ideas and scientific research funded by the government could be parceled out and privatized, because he was on the front row for the Northwest Ordinances, the Desert Land Act, the Timber Culture Act, Homestead Act, all of these laws that gave away the West. He saw, somehow, a time in which the government was funding science, which he wanted, he was an advocate for, for government science in the Progress Act, Progress Clause, rather. and. If that vision was fulfilled, he knew that the same question would result as was now being debated in the West in terms of lands and the the railroad companies. Who's going to get the stuff? And fast forward to the post-war period, the debate between the New Dealers and the Republicans and their industry allies, who's going to get the stuff? Powell alone anticipated this. And the debate after World War II was a very, very charged one because the stakes were enormous. The the research operation that was instituted during the war that resulted in penicillin, the atom bomb, all of that money was continuing to flow through the system and it was only gonna grow and this was no secret. So you had, on one side you had Democrats and left-leaning Democrats in particular represented by Harley Gilgore, a senator from West Virginia who was you know a very ferocious New Dealer attack dog in, in the Senate. And on the other side, you had Vannevar Bush, who was a Republican, a Hoover Republican, who FDR tapped to run, to oversee scientific research during the war, because he was such a talented science um, administrator, and he was so brilliant, unquestionably, across so many fields, that FDR said, this has to Trump politics. Science is going to win the war. So after the war, industry had an ally in the form of Vannevar Bush, who was, you know, he came cloaked in this enormous... Cultural authority and they kind of hid under that in a way because he was a war hero He was very like elegant refined well-spoken and he sort of provided a cover for what was really a a pretty uh, simplistic and brutal corporate argument that we should get the monopolies and um, You know screw the social contract screw diffusion the American people who funded this research uh, Should not have access to a competition based, you know market for those products. We should get everything And that kind of tussle went back and forth long after Bush and Kilgore died. And it lasted pretty much until 1980 with the passage of Bayh-Dole, which marks the official end of the New Deal vision of public science under public control for the public interest.
2: Do you feel like uh, Bush, and I think you in the book you point out, I think he was an MIT guy. um, Mm -hmm. Is he Is that do you feel like that's where. This sense of entitlement gets really a a big a big push. I mean, he definitely embodies a certain
3: yeah uh, elitism, and he fit right in with that sort of growing sense of entitlement among corporate america um in the drug industry in particular. yeah, he was a snob uh, unabashedly um you know pipe smoking elitist <laughs> um you know he didn't grow up uh, with a silver spoon in his mouth, but he was. Made wealthy very early at a very early age because he was a brilliant inventor in his own right, and he was one of the first. He was a founder of Raytheon, one of the first investors of Raytheon. Yeah. Um, he was also intimately involved in the, the rise of the sort of military-industrial complex we know today. He was on the defense policy board. So yeah, I mean, I think he's a good uh, exemplar of, of this mindset, but I wouldn't say he was a, a cause of it. But yeah, the, the elite universities like MIT that he was uh, where he was a dean, um, sort of had a similar sense of, yeah, we deserve this. So when the New Dealers wanted to have a more geographically dispersed flow of federal research funds, Bush made common cause with industry to say, no, 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 the, the Eastern uh, universities who get the lion's share of contracts should continue to get the lion's share of contracts. This is another point of conflict between the New Dealers who tended to be from the Midwest and the South and guys like Bush and his you know buddy, George Merck, based in New Jersey. So there was a geographical um, component to this, which had a certain culture cultural overlay to it. Absolutely.
2: You move on from Kilgore and Bush and the patent divide, and there really there's a lot there to delve into and and to savor. The next chapter, though, is called The Birth of Big Pharma and the Ghost of Reform. Uh, Can you share some of your story there about Estes Kefauver, that New Deal protege of Harley, uh, Kilgore, on the Antitrust and Monopoly subcommittee? And he held some congressional hearings for uh, quite a while that, that were influential. There's an interesting story there. Uh, there's a lot in that chapter, including that uh, 1947 penicillin project that Prime Minister Nehru in India uh, introduces and has its own story to it. and you had just mentioned Merck, and, and they're part of that story as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love to go over both of those. I think they,
3: both stories deserve um, at least at least a thumbnail um, sketch, especially the newer penicillin project. But I'll get to that in a second. So Estes Kefauver was uh, a protege of Harley Kilgore. And he took over, as you mentioned, uh, the Monopoly uh, subcommittee. And he was a political TV star. He held very high profile hearings on the mob. Um, brave guy, really telegenic, had a, had a sense of good one-liner and, and how to use the media. And he held... years worth of hearings uh, on the heels of other hearings on other major industries in the drug industry was 59 to 62 basically 60 yeah right, right on the cusp of the Cuban Missile Crisis is when they officially came to a close I believe and he dragged every pharmaceutical CEO in the country, pretty much, up to explain what was then the public scandal of extremely high and rising drug prices um, in the U.S. as opposed to every other country on earth. And this was the public's first real look at the inside workings of the post-ethical drug industry. By then, you know, you had 15 years of, of the rise of this new force in American life after the war, and people were already turned pretty. Hard against the industry because they're wondering why drug prices were so high and why this industry, uh, among all others, seemed to be able to price its products without any relation to things like supply demand, cost of manufacture. <laughs> like it just is like defined gravity in a way. And there were also safety scandals and and um, there was a, still an anti-monopoly sort of current in American politics because the new, you know the New Deal had only just you know was still in living memory. People in their sixties and seventies that were still alive remember the ethical pharmaceutical industry, which was a completely different planet. Um, so so these issues were, were charged in a way that's hard to really understand now. But anyway, long story short, the Kennedy White House had its handful when Kefauver put its put his bill out calling for drastic patent reform and um, shaving down the monopoly power of, of the drug industry. They were busy with things like the Cold War and civil rights. So they basically said, look, we, we, we don't have the bandwidth for this right now. They were hoping it would just go away. But then there was a huge safety scandal with a tranquilizer that was coming over from Europe, and the U.S. licensee uh, was trying to push its uh, approval through the very understaffed FDA at the time. It was a a young, what was the official term, medical staffer at the FDA named Frances Kelsey, uh, a woman who bucked her authorities the, the, her boss basically and said no we're, I'm not going to approve this drug I, there's something really disturbing about the data it's been on some key points on the safety data and she faced pressure from the industry and the FDA. and this is you know for a young woman at the time to resist that kind of pressure um, was quite remarkable and turned out that this drug in fact was causing birth defects among pre- pregnant women because its main indication was anti-anxiety uh, reducing anxiety and, and um, in pregnant women, and you had all these um, birth defects uh, popping up in Europe. So suddenly, overnight, she becomes a hero, and the pharmaceutical industry has been revealed to be, you know, profit-driven at the expense of public health and safety. And Kennedy revisits Kefauver's bill, strips it out, basically. Basically, the Democrats passed his um, beefing up of, of regulatory agencies, at the, but didn't touch any of the patent stuff. So. Those amendments are passed in 1962. Francis Kelsey's a hero. Kefauver gets his name in, in a law, but he's sort of grumbling that the patent issue was was left kicked down the road. The addendum to that story is right before he died, Kennedy issued a memorandum that showed he was actually very sympathetic to Kefauver's position. Um, and that memorandum basically said when it comes to federally funded medical science, Patent rights should, as a default matter of policy, reside um, under government control unless the industry contractor can make, some, can make a public interest argument that it deserves the monopoly. And then he was killed like three weeks later in Dallas.
2: A little bit like the uh, Wilson issue, where he has the stroke, and and then it seems to kind of perhaps derail things. And thanks for mentioning Francis Kelsey. That's a it's a great that's a great story. Yeah, it really is. And uh, I think the narrow story that you mentioned is,
3: takes us right up to the World Trade Organization and mm-hmm. the current fight over COVID 19 and the intellectual property rights around pandemic vaccines and therapeutics. And you, you may be wondering how those things are connected, but they're also connected to the Harry Steenbach patent. And this is my favorite through line in the whole book, it provides a unity that's that's really interesting. So when Steenbach patented his process for making vitamin D, it angered a lot of researchers around the world, but especially in England, where, as I mentioned, rickets was a big problem in the industrial north. And one of the researchers who had identified the deficiency of vitamin D as a cause of rickets was a British scientist named Edward Malanby, And he was part of this international course of condemnation of the Steam bomb patent. Mm-hmm. During World War II, Edward Malanby was the chief medical officer responsible for government scientific research Chain, Chain and Flory were the two Oxford scientists who took Alexander Fleming's discovery of penicillin and, and took it to the next level, but they couldn't figure out how to industrialize it. They needed help, so they went to America. But before they went to America, they went to Edward Malindy, who hated the American <laughs> system and of, of ethical patenting, as it was still called at the time. And they wanted to patent what they'd done in Oxford to protect it from the Americans. And Malindy said— absolutely not. We are not going to stoop to their level. I'm not going to patent anything. He was still burned over the Steenbach patent, which touched on his research. Okay. After the war, some American companies, Pfizer included, did patent some of the same things that Chain and Flory had wanted to patent as a defensive measure sure. that Malindy said no to. Mm. Now he's twice scorned. He's, no man hates oh. <laughs> the, the American post-ethical system that's developing more than ever Malindy. Okay. Now we get to Nehru. Nehru becomes the first prime minister of India. He needs to develop some sort of public health infrastructure for a very poor country full of people who need, among other things, penicillin. He puts out a tender because there's no domestic base whatsoever to do it on its own, scientific, technical or um, industrial for the most part. Just not enough. The companies, the Western companies, do not want to help him build any sort of domestic capacity because they would rather just sell overpriced penicillin to India and other countries in the global south like they did during the colonial era. And Merck comes along and says, gives them basically the, the best of several bad offers and says, look, we'll build a factory, but we're going to have control over you know production. We'll train some of your scientists, but there's going to be a royalty associated which is going to stretch 20 years into the future. It wasn't a great deal. It wasn't what Neighbor wanted, which was, I want you to come here and train my scientists give us the know-how, give us all your trade secrets, help us build a penicillin plant. And they didn't want to do that because, one, they wanted to sell penicillin, and two, they knew that that could be expanded. Once a country like India had a domestic capacity, they could start making other drugs. They could start researching their own. They could reverse engineer. This is, in fact, what ended up happening. And the reason it ended up happening is because right when Nehru was about to accept the mark off an official associated with the World Health Organization, which had just been founded inside the UN, which itself was a very new organization, named Edward Malanby, flew to New Delhi with an offer, which was, we will build you that plant, and we will build you a research facility and train Indian scientists to build a public drug sector in India. And next to Edward Malanby, as representatives of this project, were Chain and Flory and a whole cast of characters that had been watching in horror as the U.S. post-ethical system was built up and embraced Mm -hmm. by the U.S. political system and its courts. And Malinby is this sort of connecting character from Steenbach to the Penicillin Project to Nero's Penicillin Project, which takes us to the the WTO because that self-based public drug sector was a threat to the global aspirations of the post-ethical U.S.-driven pharmaceutical industry, U.S. slash Europe, eventually. And the WTO was basically the counter-assault, was was basically an attempt to crush that industry and make it subservient to the U.S.
2: system of monopoly medicine. Uh, Thanks for that recap and and the connection with Mellonby, because you also had that uh, nice footnote about how the bitterness over the American situation is still Uh, Still there, you you mentioned that there was a graduation speech uh, in 2020 at Oxford University where a vice-chandler defense patenting the university's uh, COVID-19 research for the public good so as to avoid repeating the mistake of the early 40s when Oxford academics discovered penicillin And handed all the rights off, right? Yes. Thank you for iding that exactly It shows that this history is still alive in a lot of ways, Mm.
3: especially
1: at Oxford. Yes.
2: Talk about lingering issues. Um, I realize uh, you've already talked a bit about this, uh, but could you articulate some of your argument in Chapter 8, uh, Black Pill, Neoliberalism and the Chicago Turn, regarding Hayek and the five-year study program at the University of Chicago uh, called the Free Market Society? You focus on the economist George Stigler, and you write, If ideas developed by Stigler during the 1960s seemed precision-engineered to help an embattled drug industry, that's because they were. Uh, There's a lot here uh, that's critical for understanding the high value our political system places on free market ideology with all its implications for policy. In terms of drug patents and intellectual property, a key chapter on a few levels. Can you share some of its importance with us?
1: Sure. That's a fascinating chapter because it sort of brings together a couple of big threads in in the post-war um, American story, where the conservative pushback against the New Deal and its legacy, um, which extends, you know, all the way back to the first. Um, you know, election in which FDR came to power before he even contemplated what became the New Deal, Um, where that sort of intersects with the rise of pharmaceutical industry as a self-aware lobbying power and industry that wants to be proactive and on the offensive in terms of creating um, a political um, environment in which it's Patent monopolies are safe and the regulatory agencies do not have the power uh, over them that they feared was going to grow and grow following the 1962 Kefauver amendments. To rewind that back to the assault on FDR, the, the key figure there is Hayek, Friedrich Hayek. The Austrian um, economist, he was uh, his project was essentially a revival of what was known as classical liberalism. This was a very small state approach that was self-consciously in opposition to the dominant Keynesian framework of the World War II and post-war decades. And essentially, he came to the United States, found a corporate patron who set up a project at the University of Chicago that was devoted to developing his ideas, except one. (laughs) And that was the classical liberal opposition to not just um, intellectual property, but patent monopolies in particular. Because Hayek believed that the economy was basically one giant information processor. And anything that interrupted that natural flow of information was a problem. And it had no place in his theoretical analysis of a free society and a free economy. So he was consistent on that score, as were his acolytes. And the patrons of the Chicago Project (laughs) did not share the European skepticism uh, and hostility to patents and intellectual property more broadly. So they basically funded a new kind of liberalism, which we now know as neoliberalism, Um, although there's a whole debate about exactly how to define that. But for the purposes of this book, I focused on the embrace of monopoly, the embrace of extreme concentrations of corporate power at Chicago. That was a mutation of Hayek's original theory. And this very much served the purposes of the pharmaceutical industry, which of course is based on patent monopolies. So they were some of the earliest and most energetic funders of the work being done at what became known as the Chicago Law and Economics Movement, because it was based out of the law school in the economics department. Among the figures there who worked closely with the pharmaceutical industry was George Stigler, who's best known for the theory of regulatory capture. Um, but in his work, regulatory capture isn't really a problem. You know, industry capturing the regulatory agencies doesn't lead to calling for more democracy. It leads to equipping industries with the ability to finesse that capture in ways that elude the people being captured. It's sort of a cognitive capture, as it's been called. The idea is you would colonize the minds of the agencies. You would reframe the debates so that the very um, terms are favorable to you. And this is why you have guys like Robert Bork being funded to you know, rewrite the history of antitrust and monopoly in this country. Um, and he was very good at that, and he was very energetic. Um, and a lot of people in, on that side of the fence wanted him to be rewarded um, with the Supreme Court, which, of course, was, was denied him. But that story is, you know, that's just the thumbnail sketch. It's a lot more textured in the book. But essentially, the Chicago Project was a kind of handmaiden for the pharmaceutical industry when it realized it had to step up its game. And it was perfectly timed to their needs. This sort of reinvention of, of liberalism with a carve out um, that no longer opposed monopolies.
2: As you said, uh, just a sketch. and one of the many chapters in which readers will find compelling support for your argument, including your ninth chapter, uh, which is titled, By Dole and the Reagan Acceleration. It opens with describing the Watergate babies, that new class of freshman Democrats to the House in 1974, and a leaked Carter administration strategy memo outlining how they could adopt many of the Republican positions, and basically ignore the left of their own Democratic Party, who are described in the memo as antiquated and anachronistic a group, as are the conservative Republicans. It's a telling juxtaposition and well chosen for inclusion in your book, relevant to its patent debate and monopoly medicine thesis, is how this public-private morality plays out at the individual level. Thinking here of your note about Alfred Kahn, and his ideological change from New Deal patent skeptic to his later writing on regulatory economics. I realize the con story is just a footnote, but seems indicative of the shifting political winds, as you put it, as well as sharing similarities uh, to the George Stigler ideological about face
1: Right. Well, as you note, know, the 70s were a period of shifting. Political uh, centers in the Democratic Party, you had this changing of the guard associated with a generational shift that happened to coincide with the stagflation um, of the period and the slowdown post Vietnam, which your listeners are no doubt familiar with. Um, And possibly lived through. And just as the industry was able to take advantage of the shifting politics of the early Cold War to sort of defend its growing monopoly power against the critics, they were able to link up with their Republican allies in the 70s and – manipulate, take advantage of, ride this economic anxiety associated with the oil crisis and everything around it to basically reframe their attack on the Kennedy policy, which you mentioned as well, which essentially gave the government default first dibs on inventions that it funded. And they've been trying to pull that inside out ever since 1963. So what they did was they floated a new argument that basically said the sclerotic Kennedy policy is holding us back from being able to compete with Europe and Japan. And this was a pretty nonsensical argument if you looked at the patent policies <laughs> of those places. They were much looser than the U.S. policy in many cases. And government, you know, technology, just because the government held rights to it didn't mean that it was being held back from use. In fact, the whole purpose of public Uh, science is that it's available for the broadest possible access and development. So it was a facile and extremely disingenuous um, argument that unfortunately had uh, an impact because a lot of people in Congress were just open to the idea of sort of new thinking and also didn't necessarily know a lot about how patents worked. And... Enough of them were convinced so that you eventually had the passage of bayh in 1979, um, which included the stamp of approval even of Russell Long, who had been considered the sort of New Deal firewall. And then, you know, the Reagan decade that followed is built on Bayh-Dole and further trampled on the legacy of the New Deal. But yeah, it all sort of started in the mid 70s. Um, with this deepening economic anxiety, very widespread, that allowed a lot of people to kind of uh, make progress on issues they hadn't been able to make progress on before. Just as you had neoconservatives reframing American foreign policy, setting the groundwork for the very hawkish Reagan foreign policy, you also had something similar happen uh, domestically with um, enemies of, of the Kennedy patent policy and the New Deal vision of science generally.
2: Uh, As a final question for you, it's long been popular to write book reviews uh, on more than a single book. In fact, uh, Mark Lilla, a professor of humanities at Columbia, uh, did just that when he included your first book about Glenn Beck in a 2010 review in the New York Review of Books. And I suppose it goes without saying, but it seems no small feat uh, to have your first book. Uh, reviewed by a noted intellectual historian, and in the same spirit of a multi-book review, what would you recommend uh, to listeners interested in, in looking to build on their understanding of the critically important issues you raise uh, in your latest book, Laying Bare, the Historical Legacy of the American Version of Patent Monopolies and the Implications for Global healthcare?
3: Well, I would definitely point people who are interested in in reading more to the notes on sources uh, in the back of the book where I give credit or try to give credit to all of the scholars who have been researching the history of medicine and pharmaceuticals, especially in recent years who have uncovered, you know, the stuff I try to tie together in the book. I mean, a lot of the history had, had been out there, but it had been compartmentalized and and sort of piecemealed in the academic fashion. And what I tried to do was was tie it all together in a coherent narrative that was um, digestible for a non-academic reader. Um, And there's a lot there, and I would recommend um, people look at that scholarship if they're interested. In terms of recent titles that I think would be a good pairing, uh, in terms of review, uh, a review essay, there's a new book by John Abramson of Harvard Medical School called Sickening, which really unpacks the relationship between the pharmaceutical industry and organized medicine and the medical journals uh, and medical publishing industry, which is one of the subjects of the book. Um, it's what the mm. uh, historian Dominic Tobel calls the most important strategic alliance of, of the drug industry. And Abramson really shows what that looks like in practice and how the industry has been allowed to get away with not providing data to mm. medical journals. I mean, half of the articles that doctors are basing prescribing decisions on are just junk. <laughs> you know, and, and you can't even, mm. you no know, one even knows to the extent, because they don't have to provide the data. How can you peer review and assess a study if you don't have the data? They've been allowed to black box all of it. It's an absolutely horrifying, dangerous, and uh, nauseatingly corrupt situation. So he brings a lot of this stuff in the book up to date and really gets into the nitty gritty of it, uh, Which and I'd recommend
2: that book to anyone. Thanks again, Alex, for your well-researched and well-written book, published March of 2022 by CounterPoint Press. Again, the title, Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much, Keith. I really appreciated it. Enjoyed it.
2: Alex, Nice, nice to talk to you.